If a work, for instance, is made on commission, um, it is part of an economic transaction between artist and patron from the very beginning. If a work is um, created with the aim of selling it or exchanging it um, with other goods at a later moment, uh, it becomes a commodity with an economic value attached. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second episode here on the Economics Podcast, where we explore economics from every angle. On today's episode, we will explore the exciting subject of arts as an economic good, its market, and why we humans collect it. Anthony Fox and Marie-Eves will be discussing the subject with Dr. Barbara Furlotti, researcher as a postdoctoral fellowship at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles and current associate lecturer at the Courtland. She has published extensively on the history of collecting, display practices, and the art market, and today we are lucky to have her with us. We hope you enjoy it. Who has visited the Sistine Chapel in Rome, looked up at the ceiling, and not been struck for words by the skill and creativity of Michelangelo's work? Who has visited the Orangerie in Paris and not gazed at Monet's water lilies with wonder and amazement? The creative process, so seemingly easily attained by such an elite group, expresses an individual's thoughts and imagination, and possibly more importantly reflects, to all, their place and time in the world. The subjective best are displayed in museums and galleries, with some kept hidden in private homes for posterity. Displayed is the vital term. Unless the public are to rely on philanthropists, the monetization of art is essential to our society, and thus must be accepted. If art is constantly being moved around the world, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York to the National Academy in London and beyond, access to the common man is extended, and art's value on an individual or generic basis is amplified. Dr. Falotti, is art a cultural or economic good? I would say that art is a cultural phenomenon more than good, and in fact it is a cultural phenomenon as old as humankind. Um, paleontropologists, for instance, have long argued that even hand axes, so objects that we usually consider as simply tools created by prehistoric people to hunt and fight, um, were in fact made not only for those practical reasons, but also to please the sense of sight and, and touch. And, and there was a major exhibition um, dedicated to Stonehenge at the British Museum in 2022, uh, where there was a large display of uh, hand axes, and they were all carefully polished, made out of colorful stones. So. The display was, I have to say, at least for me, unexpectedly uh, beautiful. Um, it was clear that whoever made the, those tools uh, consciously created something that had to be not only functional, but also nice to watch and to, and to hold. So while art in general is a cultural phenomenon, I do agree that any artistic product is an economic good becomes at least an economic good. Um, it can be a durable work, such as, I don't know, for instance, a cycle of frescoes realized inside a, a Renaissance palace, or an intrinsically transient one, like Christos and uh, Jean-Claude's landscape interventions, where they used to pack large monuments. 
such as the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Um, but no matter how, how is the, what is the nature of these artworks, uh, usually art products uh, have an economic dimension. Um, if a work, for instance, is made on commission, um, it is part of an economic transaction between artist and patron from the very beginning. If a work is um, created with the aim of selling it or exchanging it um, with other goods at a later moment, uh, it becomes a commodity with an economic value attached. So, again, to go back to the beginning of my answer, there is, I think, a distinction to be made here between art and artworks. Art is a cultural phenomenon. Artworks participate to the economy of a society, regardless, uh, in many cases, uh, of the artist's uh, original intention. Um, even uh, Banks's works, which in theory um, are created outside the mechanisms of the art market, and indeed uh, in opposition to it, have in fact uh, now their own market, their own collectors, and are exhibited uh, all over the world. But how do we value an artwork? I'm an art historian, so I'm more used to investigate the historical and artistic value or relevance of an artwork rather than uh, establishing its uh, um, economic value. Um, critics, uh, connoisseurs and art dealers are the people usually involved in the task of valuing and thus attaching a pr price tag, if you want, to an artwork in, in view of its uh, sale. And I have to say that I find uh, that valuing an artwork can, can be um, a rather tricky endeavor um, because one has to take into account a, a number of variables. Um, of course, quality is or should be, is or should be um, uh, the major factor. Um, but in this regard, I think that there are some differences between the market of the so-called old and um, modern masters, so uh, of uh, artworks created up to the uh, beginning of the 20th century, and on the other hand, uh, the, the market for contemporary art. Um, it seems to me that the market for pre-20th century art is still very much focused on quality, and I'm talking here uh, from a Western point of view, because Western art is the uh, kind of art that I'm more familiar with. Uh, while on the other hand, I think that the market for contemporary art um, follows its own rules um, that are not necessarily linked to the intrinsic material or aesthetic quality of a work. Um, and I think that you have a hint of these different mechanisms uh, for evaluating uh, contemporary art by simply looking at some outrageous, I think, prices that uh, are paid at auction houses or in galleries for some contemporary artworks, which, in my opinion, um, are questionable in terms of their quality or in terms of the innovation of their message. Basically, uh, what I think it's happening here is that prices of contemporary art uh, not always reflect its 
through quality. Sometimes prices can be determined uh, by the fashion of the moment, by the ability of an artist to build their own public persona, or mainly by the skillfulness of their galleries to make an artistic phenomenon out of them. Uh, somehow we can say that basically a good or bad marketing strategy can either make or break uh, a contemporary artist. Um, it is mainly the contemporary art market with its, you know, its mechanisms, its professionals and the records of the past sales that uh, does really create the, the value of, of contemporary artworks. Um, on the other hand, when you value an artwork by an old master, besides considering its quality, one usually takes into account variables such as, for instance, its uh, material aspect. Uh, so, for instance, uh, its conservation uh, situation and, and possibly uh, issues in conservation. Um, while a variable that is relevant for, for both old and contemporary works, something that you should keep in mind while you are valuing an artwork, is the biography uh, of, of that artwork, its, its previous history. So sometimes the fame of a previous owner, for instance, may affect the price of a work more than the, the intrinsic quality of a piece or the name of its author. So a work that comes from a prestigious historical collection or from the possessions of a famous public figure will inevitably be valued at a, at a higher price than a work of similar quality, but without an interesting pedigree. But I'm curious, why do you think that people collect art? I have to say, first of all, that I'm not a collector, so I do not feel that irresistible drive that moves many collectors to possessing artworks. So uh, I'm not going to answer this question from a personal point of view, but I've been doing research on collecting practices for many years, especially in the context of early modern Italian courts. Um, so I, I, I know very well the mechanisms of underpinning uh, uh, collecting practices and strategies. And I think that the reasons for collecting art have changed very little in the last five centuries. Um, first of all, I think that taste and pleasure are often important factors in, in collecting, uh, but they rarely are the only factors. Uh, since the Renaissance, commissioning and collecting art um, have been a sign of cultural refinement, but, and that, that, that is that for sure, but they are, are also a, a sign of uh, social, economic, and political distinction. I think it is very important to understand that investing in art is investing in something that does not produce a profit for the person who invests in it, at least not an immediate and tangible profit. Um, unless you are an art dealer, of course. Um, so for this reason, art patronage and art collecting was something that only the elite could afford in the Renaissance. Uh, of course, the art market has changed dramatically since then. Uh, so now the offer 
is much wider with a wide variety of prices and, and thus buying art has become less of an elite activity. Um, of course, this depends on the quality of what you collect and the quantity uh, uh, of artworks that you, you want to collect. But um, if, if you collect very high quality works in, in a large number, of course, collecting can still be an elite practice as it was in the Renaissance. But I think that the reasons behind collecting in the Renaissance and collecting now are more or less the same. There is pleasure, taste and, um, and prestige because even now collecting and uh, um, commissioning art uh, brings uh, bring prestige to, to the patron. Access to the public extends creativity. Um, consider the Impressionists and how many copied and extended Monet's process. For the most part, those artists enjoyed less success, but that does not diminish the creativity of those involved, and even indeed the creativity of the primary school child trying to emulate the professional artist. Creativity takes place in all kinds of forms and should not be considered a blanket term. However, monetization can sometimes hinder the creativity when artists modify their ideas solely for the purpose of making money and for the consumer, resulting in distorted art with little to no original content. Nevertheless, artists have the freedom to create content for monetization while also producing content for their own personal satisfaction. If the latter is later monetized, it can be considered a bonus but the decision ultimately rests with the individual or the family involved. Is art crime proliferate? Yes, unfortunately, art crime is thriving uh, all over the world uh, right now. Um, and archaeological sites and archaeological material are particularly at risk. Um, and I think that we all remember the terrible scenes of uh, the destruction of archaeological sites in, in Syria during the uh, recent war and the looting of the archaeological museum in Baghdad during the invasion of Iraq. Um, according to the UNESCO annual report, illicit diggings have been on the rise for many decades now, uh, with never-ending wars, economic crises and political unrest, of course, fostering the phenomenon of antiquities uh, smuggling. Uh, I'm an art historian, so I'm very sensitive to this topic, but at the same time, it is difficult for me to blame the local people who excavate illegally, because I understand that in most of the cases, these illicit traffics represent one of the very few ways in which they can support their family in countries where better opportunities are often unavailable. So in my opinion, the main and real problem is the lack of transparency of a large segment of the art market um, that is still too willing to absorb such uh, material uh, dug up illegally without asking enough questions. Of course, if we are able to, uh, uh, to um, load the requests from the art market for these uh, illegally excavated objects, uh, we are also able to reduce the impact that this has to, on the 
uh, archaeological patrimony. Um, so the, the, the one of the main problems within this this complicated context is the fact that checks on the provenance of artworks uh, um, should be done carefully and professionally, uh, but right now they are done by the very same people that can uh, benefit from the sale, that is from the art dealers. So when you have um, the people who should be checked, checking on themselves, uh, of course, uh, uh, things uh, become a bit complicated. So right now, uh, checks on the provenance of uh, archaeological artworks and artworks in general uh, is perhaps not uh, as effective as it should be. Uh, thefts in museums keep happening at a worrying pace as well. Um, and I'm not talking about small provincial museums with little or no security systems. Large national museums in Europe and the US uh, have been the target of many um, heists as well. So uh, thieves in these cases often target well-known artworks and they find this rather confusing and even counterintuitive um, because uh, if you steal something that is well known from a large museum, something that is very recognizable, such as, for instance, a Madonna by Leonardo, which was stolen by a Scottish castle open to the public in 2003, well, there is no way that you will be able to sell it on the open market, uh, will you? Um, however, is this not the whole point of stealing an artwork? To resell it. Well, in fact, this is not necessarily the case. Sometimes thieves work on commission, so they are instructing to procure specific works um, that are desired by a collector who will then simply make the pieces disappear in his or her uh, private collection. Uh, but it's, it, it's also true that situations like this happen, um, but they are perhaps more common in movies than in real life. So again, according to, to UNESCO, um, thefts on commission make up a very limited uh, um, percentage of the total thefts worldwide, um, while the uh, largest percentage of thefts are perpetrated by um, criminal gangs and criminal organizations. Um, who then might ask a ransom or use the artwork as a collateral uh, in negotiations with the police. So, for instance, if a criminal is caught, he might use an important uh, artwork that um, he has stolen years before or that he has acquired somehow during his criminal career and use it as a bargain chip. So returning it might buy him a shorter conviction, conviction um, sentence. Um, and and in, the, in the criminal world, um, artworks uh, um, are also used very often as securities, for instance, to guarantee large payments for a shipment of drug. Um, and this is how they might change hand from one criminal to the other. Um, the Leonardo Madonna, for instance, which I mentioned earlier, uh, was offered by a criminal as a collateral in the acquisition of a house at a certain point uh, in, its, in its life. And if you are interested in this story, 
um, uh, there is a podcast uh, by the BBC called The Missing Madonna, which uh, uh, tells you the, 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 all the story of the highest and how the Madonna was recovered. So in this case, there was a happy ending, uh, but unfortunately, uh, once artworks uh, become bargain chips or collaterals, their future uh, also becomes uh, more uncertain. Um, because they are proofs of criminal activities. So if they turn out to be not as useful as they, um, as originally thought, they might be destroyed. So in spite of all the regulations and uh, um, international efforts in fighting art crime, the phenomenon has become one of the most lucrative criminal businesses in the world, according to, to UNESCO. And we have one final question. Can we ever truly own an artwork? I would love to be able to end our conversation by saying that nobody ever truly owns art because art is universal and we all as a community do own art. Um, but in fact, uh, such an answer to your question would be incorrect, incomplete and, and definitely naive. Um, so I think that uh, if anybody is interested in this topic, the a good starting point would be um, to read a, con a controversial book by James Cuno, who is the former director of the Getty Museum. Um, and the book is entitled Who Owns Antiquity? Um, and the main idea underpinning it is that antiquities should be regarded as a universal patrimony. And that's something that we share and we want to share. The problem with this book um, is that it is written from a somehow um, biased perspective, since the Getty Museum has been involved in many um, requests of restitution of uh, looted and smuggled antiquities from countries such as um, Italy, Greece and Turkey. So, um, as you can understand very well, it is difficult not to think that the idea of uh, the universal ownership of antiquities uh, serves the um, museum's interest um, more than the interest of the international community. But to, to go back to your, uh, to your question, more to the point, uh, yes, I believe that art can be owned. And in fact, uh, you see that artworks are often taken out of the public dominion and, and enjoyed privately by collectors. And I think this is a very good evidence of the fact that artworks, artworks uh, um, can be truly owned. Um, especially very expensive artworks um, can be bought uh, as an investment. And so they are kept in a bank safe with nobody ever even enjoying them. Um, so not only you can own art and an artwork, but you can also manage it as if it were a gold bar so as an economic good, to go back to uh, uh, one of your questions. Um, and there is a, uh, an interesting case in point in, in, in this regard. Um, the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo, a, 
relatively small painting uh, sold by Christie's New York in 2017 for the astronomical price of $450,000 million, um, has passed through a couple of owners since then, uh, but it has never been seen in public again. So, um, as you see, cases like this, uh, where collectors uh, simply keep their artworks away from the public eye, are far from unusual. Uh, and sometimes collectors don't even like lending uh, these artworks for, uh, for exhibitions. So, it's very difficult sometimes to, uh, um, even for art historians, to get access to uh, private, privately owned uh, artworks. Um, so my conclusion is that if you cannot really see or experience an artwork, it is difficult to pretend that that artwork is still part of our shared artistic patrimony. Um, and this is why I believe that we should cherish um, the role played in our communities by national museums, public collections, and, and also by those art places which are privately owned by open, but open to the public. Um, and we should pay these institutions a visit um, more often. Well, Anthony, that definitely changed my perspective on um, art and, and its relationship with economics. Uh, what did you think? I thought it was uh, absolutely fantastic to listen to Dr. Falotti. I met her in the summer and she came off as a really interesting um, and opinionated individual. And we're very thankful for having her on our podcast today. But attention exists between art, economic and cultural value. The monetization of art creates an audience and thus creates awareness about other inaccessible art and as such plays a necessary societal role. The argument that no one needs art and thus art should not be monetized is somewhat ignorant. Everyone needs art to inspire. Art galleries need to be accessible for all. Most in the UK apart from special exhibitions are free, whereas in Europe most require entry fees. Nevertheless, a delicate balance appears to exist between making art widely available, a process that necessitates some form of monetization, and ensuring financial accessibility to art, thereby achieving success in its monetization to some extent. Only a select few manage to monetize their passion, and throughout history, such financial gains often occur posthumously. Hence, art should be monetized, but when it comes to artwork owned by individuals, the decision is entirely theirs, allowing them the freedom to make that choice. That was a very interesting discussion. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something with our interviewers, Maddie Aves and Anthony Fox. We'd like to thank especially our guest, Barbara Furlati, who has joined the conversation from England and who has enlightened us with her unique perspective. We'd also like to thank the whole economics team Doriana and Raphael, that were present behind the scenes, as well as the Sciences Po IT team. This podcast was developed with the support of the Reims Economic Society. So don't forget to follow our Instagram to get the latest updates on our upcoming episodes. See you soon.